desperately needs is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, says this author. And so here's where we need to work. Here's where we need to do some thinking and to dig into who is this Melchizedek. And so, heads up, it is going to take some work. He's warned us of this, actually. Do you remember that he doesn't want to deal with just milk? He wants to move on to solid food. And so this is solid steak. If you are new to these things, we love that you are here. It is so good. There'll be many Christians who have read the Bible for a long time who'll be going, whoa, tonight. And so don't be put off by that, okay? I'll just sling a bunch of mud and hopefully just a little bit might stick. But let's do that. Let's jump in. Who is Melchizedek, the one that points us to our greatest need? Well, the writer introduces him there in chapter 7 of Hebrews. And in the first few verses there, one to... Two, he, he unpacks some details that we find back in Genesis for, uh, chapter 14. Come back there. We had it read, but let, let's go back and have a look, just understand the context. And as we're flicking there, if we can bring up the uh, rough timeline that I've drawn up from us, um, and we might just leave there so we can point to it, just so we know where we are, Jesus, first century, but back Genesis 14, it's all the way back at the start of the Bible, a man named Abraham, who, who is called Abram, his name uh, becomes Abraham. And so it's all the way back here. David will come across him, Moses, Levi, Aaron. These are some figures there. Now, the, the context of Genesis 14 is that Abraham has a nephew, Lot, who's been captured by an alliance of kings. And so Abraham goes and forms his own alliance to take them on. He wins the battle to rescue Lot. Pick it up there, chapter 14, verse 16. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolama and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley. Skip to verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. And on he goes to go, no, I won't receive uh, anything from you so that you can never boast of making me rich. Now, unless you were looking at the Bible or paying close attention, you wouldn't know that I've skipped a bunch of verses there. Verse 17, the king of Sodom comes to Abraham. Verse 21, the king of Sodom speaks to Abraham. But... In this seemingly random, sudden interruption, we have verse 18. And this is where we meet Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. End of the Melchizedek story for the rest of the Bible. That's it. So what can we learn in those few short verses? Well, he's a king, a king of Salem, which most likely will go on to be known as Jerusalem. Chase up Psalm 76 verse 2 later if you want to see the connection. He's a priest, a priest of God most high the one true God, the creator of all things. He brings supplies to Abraham, which he receives, unlike the king of Sodom. 
He blesses Abraham and then receives a tithe, a tenth of all of Abraham's stuff he receives. Then he's gone. Not another mention of him. There's Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Come back to Hebrews 7, which is what the author here is trading on and making so much of. Plus one other little point in the Bible that we'll come back to in a sec. Have a look at verse 3 there. Speaking of Melchizedek, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, what do we make of that? You read that, you go, who is this Melchizedek? Well, many Christians over the years, and and even some today, will understand this to be a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. It's called a Christophany. Uh, See, Jesus is all the way here, but all the way back here in Abraham's time, uh, Jesus, who is not yet Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes down for a brief moment as Melchizedek, has this encounter with Abraham, and then returns to heaven. Now, possibly, but I don't think so. Not because I don't believe in miracles. I can't believe the Gospel of the Bible unless you do. We're about to celebrate the great miracle of Christmas, a virgin gives birth. I don't think that's what's going on, nor do I think it's an angel, as we do find in other parts of the Old Testament, particularly around Moses, burning bush. Is it the Lord? Is it the angel? Rather, I think Melchizedek was a real historical man. Now, after all, we're not that far from the flood, from the time of Noah the new beginning that God makes, and particularly through his son Shem. And it's not unreasonable to imagine that some thread of knowledge of the one true creator God has lingered on and has remained at least in one family, the family of Melchizedek, who serves God as priest. Abraham clearly recognises Melchizedek's greatness. But here's the striking thing. If, If you've read Genesis... It's not rocket science. You just have to read it a couple of times and pay attention. Anyone who's anyone in the account has a long intro and an outro. Uh, They're introduced by genealogy. Who did they come from? Who have they descended from? It will record their death and then their descendants, those who have come from them. All the main figures have this, but not Melchizedek. He flashes before your eyes like a shooting star. No intro, no outro, just we read it, that's it. Now, a literalistic reading of verse 3, without father or mother, without beginning of days, end of life and so on, leads you down the path of it being a visitation of God. Yeah, some Christophany thing here. But I want to put to you that a literary reading In contrast to a literalistic reading, a literary reading, what do I mean by that? A a reading of the literature sensitive to not just what it's saying, but what it's doing. This is critical for good, careful Bible reading. Not just the surface, what it's saying. No, you've got to start there. You've got to do the comprehension. But if you appreciate literature as a reader or a writer, literature, words can actually do things. Not just state things on the surface. And so a literary reading, 
leads me and plenty of others to see Melchizedek as a real man of history who really did have a biological mother and father who did die. But since none of those details are recorded in the text, like they are for all the other significant players, it's as if they never happened. It's as if he had no mother, father, was not born, didn't die, had no successor, because he just lobs in and then... It's as if he continues to live. Now, that is an argument from silence, if you're familiar with that idea. But silence can be very significant when you're expecting a sound. The absence of a sound is actually significant. There you have it. Whether you believe that this was a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ or a historical, it's actually not the big point, okay? Let's not miss the big point. But that's who I want to put it to you, this Melchizedek is, who is such a big deal in this letter of Hebrews. Why? Well, let's move on and see. His first big point in those verses, verse 4 to 10, is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now remember, say that to a Jew, great father Abraham, There is someone greater than him. What? Now that's picked up in verse 7, the principle there. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser is blessed by the greater. It's the one who is greater who is able to then bless someone who is the lesser for receiving it. Now, catch that. So here's Abraham. And if you've just read a couple of pages before, chapter 12... This is the man who has received these amazing promises from God. Promise to be blessed in the most amazing way. Abraham is the most blessed man on planet Earth at the time. And yet it's the greater who blesses the lesser. And it's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham. Wow. Who is this man? It'd be like telling a staunch English monarchist, that someone got off a red bus in London and walked into Buckingham Palace and Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II bowed on her face before this person. It took her a while to get down and get up again, but, but she did it. You'd be like, who is this person on a red bus? That Her Majesty would bow before them. Who is this figure greater than Abraham? Well, there's his first point, but he only makes that point so he can now make the big dominant point through the rest of the passage, which is this. And if we can skip to the next slide that just has a little bit more detail on this timeline. His point is, the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood that would come from Abraham. The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood that would come from Abraham and that the priesthood of Melchizedek is to point us to Jesus. That's his big argument. That's what he's now going to spend the rest of the chapter arguing. Okay, now again, just remember the original context. This is not once upon a time in a spiritual land far, far away. This was written to a real group of people, Jews, first century Jews who had converted to Christianity which meant coming to embrace Christ as their high priest. Now, 
the huge thing for these people is, Jesus is from the wrong tribe to be a priest. Now, tell me, how many nights this week, this month, this year, or ever, did you lie awake in bed stressing that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah and not Levi? (laughs) Now, we have our questions and concerns and doubts for God. That's not one of them. But it's a huge one for Jews because it was from this tribe, Levi, that the priesthood came, not from the tribe of Judah that Jesus came from. And so in coming to Christ, these Jews were letting go of something that they as individuals, but as a people for over a thousand years, had held too deeply in order to embrace something new. I don't know if you, we can appreciate just how big a thing that is, something that you've had ingrained in you from day dot, not just you, but all those around you, and letting go of it for something else. That's massive. I really can't think of a great example except for this, that I was brought up in a rugby league, playing, watching, loving family. Right? I know there are a bunch of buff heads, but I love rugby league. Now, that's because it was my parents who introduced me to footy to rugby league, who took me along to play, we watched all the games. Do you know, a couple of years ago, after 40 years of me, you know, being in this context, my dad has converted to AFL. (laughs) You know that game where grown men wear really tight shorts, they squabble over the ball because they just dropped it again, you you get a point for missing, and (laughs) I'm just, what a dumb game. Now, I don't... I think I can say that because I don't think many of you care about either, right? And I'm just shocked. And he's trying to tell me and my kids that AFL is where it's at, to let go of this thing that we've held on so tightly as a family and to embrace this news. I I cannot conceive of ever loving AFL. Now, if you don't care about football, you're like, whatever, that's just football. AFL, rugby league, who cares? You say to the Jew, look, it's just priesthood. Who cares from the line of Judah, from the line of Levi? Who They care. And the reason they care is a very good reason to care is because God said it must be the tribe of Levi and no other. Oh, do you see now the huge thing that it was for these first Christians to actually embrace something new? It's hard for us to connect, but, but let's keep doing the work. Because God instituted this law of Moses, we'll see it in the text in a sec, which meant Levi, from whom Aaron came, would be the high priest. And in fact, you get examples through the Old Testament of people who aren't from the tribe of Levi, who try and do the high priest thing, and it does not go well for them. They're struck down. So how does he speak to their concern? Well, firstly, by pointing out from their own Jewish scriptures that God had also said something about another superior priesthood. That's the argument from verse 11 through to the end. And it's a very tight argument, so I need to just track through it with you bit by bit, work at it. Verse 11 If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, if perfection could have been achieved through this line of priesthood here, 
which was established by God through Moses. Then why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Now, we actually we just don't appreciate how big that statement is. That the law of God, which had formed a whole people, a whole identity, a whole nation, must be changed. Why? Because this priesthood wasn't perfect. Could not perfect anyone or anything. But God had said it must be from this tribe. Well, if it couldn't perfect, then it needed to be changed. And if it needs to be changed, then you need a change of law. The end of the law of Moses. So, verse 13, he says, He of whom these things are said, now he's talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, of whom these things are said, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord, Jesus, descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Our modern problem is that we just don't see the need for a priest, for a priest. Just let me do spiritual things the way I want to do it. That wasn't the ancient problem. The ancient problem was Jesus isn't from the right line to be a priest. So his answer... Verse 15, 16. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation, law of Moses, as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. What's he doing here? He's pointing back to the first priest in the Bible. And guess what? He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He preceded Levi. This is in your Jewish Bible, Jews. And so another one was needed because this couldn't bring perfection who would be in this line. And Jesus, yes, he's not from this line. His priesthood isn't based on human ancestry, but on, what is it? The power of an indestructible life. As I said, there's no record in the Old Testament of Melchizedek dying, of him being succeeded by anyone. And so in a literary sense, as I've suggested, he lives on an indestructible life. But Jesus, when you think about it, we do have his genealogy, don't we? We're about to remember it. Mary, Joseph, back to Judah. But do you remember chapter 1, what the author of Hebrews has told us about Jesus? This is the eternal Son of God, one without beginning of days. And of course, Jesus died, but by the power of God, was raised to life bodily, physically, publicly, never to die again. And so he really does have an indestructible life. And so what is true of Melchizedek in a literary sense is true of Jesus in a literalistic sense. A priest who can be a priest quite literally forever. And this will be a huge reason why he's the priest that you and I need. We're going to come to that. 
There's the first thing he does. Hey, this was all the way back before Levi, before Aaron in the Scriptures. The second thing that he does to assure his readers is point out that this non-Levitical priesthood had been long announced by God. He does that by quoting Psalm 110. It's there in verse 17, again in verse 21. And he's been referencing this psalm a lot through the book. Now, Psalm 110 verse 4 says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The only other time in the Bible that Melchizedek is mentioned. Now, context for the psalm? Well, it's David, a thousand years before Jesus. And he gets a revelation from God about one who will come as God's forever king, who will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A king priest. Do you catch that? Melchizedek was a king priest. These are just priests. David is just a king. But one is announced that a king priest will come who, like Melchizedek, will be a priest forever. Which means if God is saying this to David here, he is saying something about this Levitical priesthood, that it is temporary and inferior. The author says exactly that, verse 18. The former regulation, the law of Moses, is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now, did you just catch what the Bible said about the Bible? It's huge. Look at that. Verse 18. The former regulation, what is that? The law of Moses. Did Moses come up with this? No, God did. This is God's word, God's law. What is it? Weak and useless. (laughs) Wow. The very word, the very law that constituted a whole people, that it was the very centre of the Jewish DNA, weak and useless. Now, what's up with that? Did God stuff up? No. Because here's the thing. The law was perfect in that it achieved exactly what God intended it to achieve. But it was never intended to save sinners. The law was useful then, in fact, even now for us. But it was always and will always be useless to draw a sinner near to a holy God. This is huge. Only a better hope, Jesus, will do that. Now, a big thing just before we move on to note about this, to note about God about how he works through all of history and in your life. It's this. God doesn't have plan Bs. This is a massive thing to catch. It's not as if, you know, he gives this law, great, I'm going to bring a people to myself, and then, whoops, it's not going so well. Hey, son, come here, I've got a mission for you. We, We need to do something about this. Not at all. Jesus is not God's plan B. 
is all the way back here. I don't suggest literally, but God has this Melchizedek show up and be recorded in those three short verses. Why? Because he's announcing a better priest. He has them preserved in an account where they don't serve really any function. And then he comes back to it with David. One's coming. Jesus has been God's plan A from eternity past. Friends, God only has a plan A for your life. Whatever twists and turns, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, and you're like, oh man, that is not God's plan B. You have not somehow got outside of the will of God. God only has plan A's. We might wish that our plan kind of felt a bit different, but, but that's not God's plan. And he's a good God who is sovereignly working every detail of your life towards his plan A of honouring himself and bringing good to you if you're in Christ. God has no plan B for your life. Tuck that one away. I don't doubt that it'll be a comfort now, but I suspect that it'll be in 10 years, 50 years, where that truth is a deep, deep comfort. It's not plan B. God's got it. All the way from the beginning, he had his son set out so that, verse 22, by this oath, Jesus would become the guarantor of a better covenant. The law of Moses was always temporary and inferior. I mean, think about it. These priests, he says it a little later on, they would serve in the temple, they would die. Another one would come, they would die. And when they came and offered the sacrifices, they had to offer it for their own sin. It's like being brought before the courts to enter charges that you are guilty for, and you have a lawyer coming to defend you who's the biggest crook in town. How's that going to go for you before the judge, before the court? That's the deal with the Levitical priesthood. And then sacrificing a bull, a goat, slitting its throat. I mean, how does that actually deal with the problem of my guilt? How does that actually remove sin? How does that mean that God can say, all right, an animal copped it, you can come? It couldn't. It was never intended to. Instead, it was a massive teaching aid. A massive pointer to our need for a greater priesthood. One in this line who would come in Jesus. A priest whose priesthood would never end. That's the point of verse 24. Well, he says, verse 23, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. A permanent priesthood, able to save those who come to God through him completely. What does that mean? Jesus saves us completely from what? It's not poor health. It's not low self-esteem. It's not relationship challenges, work stresses. Jesus comes as the great high priest to save us from God's wrath for the way that we have sinned against him. The biggest problem 
that we have, that the universe has, is not those lesser things. They're real problems. The biggest problem that we have is a God who is rightly angry and that we have no hope of just drawing near to. Jesus comes to save us completely from that wrath and then completely to the blessing that comes from being able to draw near to God. See, at its core, that's what this book is about. If you're new, if you're checking these things out, you go, what is going on? Here's the Bible in two sentences. It is about how an unholy people can draw near to a holy God. In fact, it's the other way around. It's about how a holy God, who so loves unholy sinners, makes a way for them to draw near to him. And it's not because Jesus acts as a mediator where he kind of negotiates terms between us and God. No, no, no. Because he himself is our peace. That's verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all, underline it in your Bible. Write it on your heart. Once for all, when he offered himself. This is where the categories get flipped in a completely new way, never heard of before. That the great high priest becomes the sacrifice, the substitute. The one who is slain. And he does this in his death on the cross. Where God's wrath is poured out on him. Though he did not deserve it. Verse 26. He's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted. And yet he steps into the place of sinners and absorbs it fully in himself. Which is why his death is a once for all sacrifice. Any idea that this sacrifice needs to be repeated and repeated at the Mass, after the Mass, is blasphemy. Jesus' death is a once-for-all, wrath-satisfying death to save us completely. See, it's in love that God draws near to sinners. Isn't that what we're about to particularly remember at Christmas? That the eternal God would draw near to us by actually joining himself to humanity, never to be divided again. So that in him, by looking to him, we might have a high priest who will wrap his arms around you as you look to him, as you trust him, and take you into the very presence of God Almighty himself. Not because you've done anything to deserve it. That was the point of the law. You can't get there by law keeping. But by grace. Now, Jesus' once for all sacrifice is past tense. Never to be repeated. Underline that. But there is a ministry of Jesus which is ongoing. Did you catch it there in verse 25? Because he always lives, he lives to intercede for those that he saves completely. What does that mean? Well, very quickly, it means if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have drawn near to God through him, 
the resurrected Lord Jesus, who is in the presence of God Almighty, is always praying for you. That's what it means to intercede, to pray, to petition. Have a look at it. He always lives to intercede for them. Who's the them? Those who have drawn near to God through Jesus. Which means Jesus is always pleading to God the Father for your deepest needs. And here's the good news. God always hears him and answers his prayer. This is a deep, deep comfort for us. Now, just avoid a mistake, a potential mistake here, as though you're hearing this going, wow, Jesus is so loving and so caring and he's got my best and he's always praying for me. But he's got to go to a God who's stingy and Jesus has to squeeze blessing out of God. Not at all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only high priestly son. This is God's desire. This is his love for you, sinner, that he would send his son as the high priest, as the sacrifice. That he he would then stand in his presence and intercede. He would ask things of God that God wants him to ask and God wants to answer. This is God's loving plan for you, friends. There is no other priest in the universe who can draw you near to God. There is no other thing. There is no saint in heaven. It is Jesus and Jesus alone through whom you come into the very throne room of God. Do you realize the access that you have? So what do we do with all of this as I come to finish? Well, I trust that in addition to being comforted that God has no plan B for your life, only plan A. He's sovereignly ruling it all for good. I trust that in addition to being comforted that Jesus always prays for you. You know when someone will come up to you and say, oh, this is going on, you say, I'll pray for you, and you intend to do it, but then a few days later, you're like, "Dah, I've got to pray for that person. Jesus never forgets to pray for you. That is a deep, deep comfort. The third big thing that surely this part of the Bible calls us to is to draw near to God. It's the only thing that we actually do in this whole passage. To draw near to him through Christ. By putting your trust in him. And I want to suggest to you there are three categories of drawing near among us tonight. Firstly, this is you to draw near for the first time. You have never realized your need for a priest. Or maybe you've gone through other things or people or whatever thinking that'll get you to God. Tonight is the call for you to draw near to him by trusting in Jesus. Second category of person is you've done that maybe some time ago and you've enjoyed the nearness of God, enjoyed life with him and having a sense of that. But that seems a long way behind your back. Things seem dry, things seem distant. You don't at all. Think of yourself as near to God. Well, tonight is a call for you to again draw near through Christ. And here is one of the biggest causes of a wedge, of a division between us drawing near to God. It's our unrepentant sin. You know that, don't you? That as you fall in sin and as you continue to play with sin and embrace sin, 
this, this chasm seems to open up. Well, friends, here's the call to you tonight, that no matter how far your sin has gone, God's grace has gone further. That Jesus is your once for all sacrifice. You might be going, oh, but I feel bad, I feel guilty. <laughs> That's why you have a great high priest. Turn back to him tonight, repent and enjoy forgiveness of sins. Which is the third category for all of us. And let me finish on this. If you look closely, this again is not a one-time thing. Drawing near to God is an ongoing thing. It's not when you say the prayer and become a Christian. This is something that is to be part of your Christian life, drawing near to him. Now, the author is actually going to go on for another three chapters about priesthood. And you might be glad that we're actually going to wait until 12 months, until we come back to it again, right? We've got a bit of a break. But flick over to chapter 10, where he finishes talking about priesthood and have a look at the language that he used. And let me point you to what you do with that. Verse 21, chapter 10. Since we have a great high priest, sorry, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. We're not playing religious games here. We're not just going through motions and ticking boxes. God is after the sincerity of your heart. One thing you might need to do tonight is actually to go home and put yourself in a quiet place and get sincere with God. To bring before Him where you're at. Approach Him sincerely and with the full assurance that faith brings. You can come to God no matter what you've done because He has a once-for-all sacrifice who has stood in your place, your high priest who brings you to God. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Christian, there is no place for an ongoing guilty conscience because of your sin. You have a once-for-all high priest who became the sacrifice. Our bodies washed with pure water. So that verse 23, this is the drum that he's been banging the whole way through the book. In light of who Christ is... Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. There's the big thing. Come to Jesus, your great high priest, who covers over the chasm, and stick with Jesus, stay with Jesus. Where else will you go? And as you and as we together encourage each other to do that, to stick with Jesus, we actually demonstrate that God is faithful to his word, that it's not our efforts, that it's his word to save completely those that are his. And we actually demonstrate that Jesus' intercession on our behalf, God hears and answers. And so friends, if you do nothing else with this tonight, keep sticking with Jesus. Through thick and thin, where else can you go? He's your wonderful, great high priest. Let me pray. Father, how amazing is your plan of salvation that you have unraveled and unwrapped in your word and we confess that it's us who are slow to come to it. It's us who are slow to be marveled, to marvel at it. But as we do some of that work tonight, Father, as hard as it is, we, we are in awe 
of you, the sovereign God, who has worked to give us exactly what we need. A high priest in Jesus, please, might those among us tonight who haven't drawn near do that. Might those who have been distant come back. And might you, please, Jesus, pray this, we trust that you are, cause us to keep drawing near, to keep holding fast, so that we will see you face to face, so that we will enjoy salvation in all its fullness. And we pray this in the name of our great high priest. Amen.